2: Here you would normally hear a plug for a show that is a friend of ours, but not this time. This time, just go to darkmyths.org and pick any show you like. Happy birthday, Eastern Border. We salute you all, listeners. And now, here's Kristaps. Enjoy the show. He thinks this is our best one yet.
1: Greetings comrades, when people ask me what kind of a political leaning do I have, I actually have to think about it and respond that I'm a journalist. That means I'm not a fanatical supporter of any political leaning whatsoever, that's why I am confused when people call me biased. I have many criticisms about everything really, and I just think that you should listen to the arguments of every side possible and then present some evidence support your claims. And for me, it's all about the truth, really. Uh, Truth, openness, and genuinity, I suppose. And then, if you're ready to accept arguments from the other side and discuss it and make compromises, yeah, then you're a political person. I'm a journalist. My job is to take what the professional politicians are saying and to expose it to you. And it doesn't matter if the politicians I'm speaking about are the guys from the Soviet Union or from right now. That is what you should take into account, because I've been getting a lot of... And at the same time, people in Latvia, th- they tend to say that I'm not a real journalist anymore, because I started podcasting as my main profession. Well, in the name of Pulitzer and Hunter S. Thompson, I'll do my best to prove otherwise. Now, I'd like to start this episode with a quite a long quote from the famous chess player, and an influential Russian opposition representative Gary Kasparov, quote: Many Western analysts of Russia today ignore or underestimate the underlying principles of Putin's foreign actions and propaganda. He doesn't need or care about specifics or about how things affect Russia beyond the impact of his personal power. Putin decided on an algorithm long ago. Number one. Chaos and disunity among his enemies is good. Number 2. Conflict he can use to portray Russia as surrounded by enemies, and that's necessary, and these must be big enemies to make him look big too. So the EU, NATO, and most of all, the United States of America, of which Ukraine and Turkey are puppets, of course, are very important for him. Number 3. The perception of Putin is winning is far more important than actual impact on Russia because that perception is what matters for his survival. Russian TV shows it very clearly this way. Obama said Assad must go and Putin had said no. He will stay. Assad is still there. So who's the big boss? Putin backed Brexit and Obama backed Remain. And what happened? Etc. That Syria is a huge waste of Russian lives and money is irrelevant. That Brexit and the downturn will hurt Russia is irrelevant. All that matters is that Putin looks too strong to topple in order to change his disastrous policies. The article uh, that he's commenting on with this says Brexit won't help Putin's regime domestically, but the point isn't foreign policy or what Russians think about it. It's about the invincible leader going from victory to victory, making Russia important on the world stage and defeating mighty enemies. And this this is typical for the final stage of a one-man dictatorship and it never ends peacefully." End quote. I have to agree with this quote. We have been looking at the Soviet political systems a lot on this show and by now you know that this idea of appearances was extremely important in the USSR. And seeing that Putin was a KGB colonel and is a product of that system It's not that hard to imagine that instead of providing any true democracy to the Russian people, he just adapted the style of governing that he knows best. Or is it even he? Because a colonel isn't on top of the army command chain. Putin had his superiors too, you know, and he was basically put into power by Yeltsin, nominating him as the heir apparent in late 1999. But Yeltsin was old, with heavy alcoholism problems, and certainly under the influence of ex-party functionaries back then. And when you take a closer look at Russia, you understand that there might be something deeper, even about Putin himself and his old superiors. And it's a bit scary. You see, I wanted this episode to be light and fun, looking at a weird thing from the eastern border as befits a special celebratory episode, as we are one year old by this point. But it didn't quite turn out this way. Well, the second part, the ending of this episode, kind of is. Because me and Alice are going to discuss various things related to some some Eastern European stereotypes, politics, this podcast, and look at what's in the future for the show. But but this, this, the main theme of this, it has more legitimacy than I ever thought it would. Than it ever would have any rights to be, really. Because, you know what? Putin... ...might actually be dead, folks. Dead and replaced by a body double. And the country might be run by his old KGB bosses. Okay, it sounds completely insane now, doesn't it? Of course it does, it's unimaginable, and it's just a crazy conspiracy. Well, the very least that I can give you with some self-respect as a journalist which I think that can be said without any asterisks or conditionals, is that, at the very least, again, he's definitely using a lot of body doubles himself that make public appearances for him. If he's alive, even. And that's disputable, and I cannot with a certainty say that he's dead, but this conspiracy theory certainly has a lot of weight to it. And I'm going to explain why. Because now I obviously don't have any definite proof, and this is a bit sensationalist. Yet there's some compelling evidence of this bold and crazy claim out there. Which I will present to you here on this show as best as I can. First off, let's look at where the idea to do this even came from. You see, his ex-wife says he's dead. No, seriously... Former first lady of Russia, Lyudmila Putina, who has reportedly changed her name to Ocheretnaya in 2015, in an interview to the German newspaper Die Welt, also done in 2015, states that Putin has been long dead and she refused to cooperate with power elite in this ruse, claiming that Putin's assassination had been in the works for some time and was a well-plotted out plan. Yudmila also claims her and her daughters were threatened with death if they didn't play along. Now, let's look at the obvious problem here. Well, it's an ex-wife, and maybe she just wants some publicity, you might say. Now, the following comes from an English translation of the newspaper, which I'm going to quote at length here again, and this is going to happen a lot in this episode, because these are the facts that I'm working from. My husband, unfortunately, has long been dead. I have to admit it publicly, because I no longer see what's happening on his behalf. It's terrible. They did not stop at nothing. I'm afraid that now they will kill me and my daughters as well, as they killed him. Our family was not exactly perfect. When I got married, I was in love with an intelligence officer. But the reality was quite different. Putin was a wild, cruel man, a tyrant. He never considered me, simply did not notice my existence. I was needed for him, only for reference and the composition of the family as a mother for his children. I find it hard to talk about it, but Putin beat me, humiliated, made fun of me. Life with him was torture. I tried to fight, not just going to file for divorce. But this man did not have anything, anything sacred. To silence me, he handed me over to a psychiatric clinic. I went through all the circles of hell, narcotics, psychotropic substances, bullying. For a long time I was locked up in prison, and I never saw sunlight, never seen people. I still remember it with horror. From a young, confident woman I became a shadow, my will was broken, I accepted all conditions only to come out of this. But what began after his death, it's beyond description. He was then in a difficult period. I'm sure he did not tell, but I became even more withdrawn. A month before the death of the knight, without warning, they brought daughters somewhere, I do not even know where. And then, later, he was gone completely. At night, when we came home, some people, of whom some I knew, some I saw the first time ever, they broke everything, they turned everything upside down. They reviewed all the papers. All the walls in the house were rattling. They told me only one thing. If you want to live, be silent. All questions about my husband were replied in brief. That he would soon come. That he went into an important retreat in the interest of national security. It's not worth it uh, to me to discuss it with anyone. A A few days later came his first understudy. Later, I learned that the murder of Vladimir was prepared ahead of time. It was conducted when the first twin was almost ready to take his place. Outwardly, he was, of course, very much like Putin. I was impressed. But it was a completely different person. They somehow managed to track down the girls, and I was issued an ultimatum. Either I play the role of a devoted wife or me and my daughters no longer live. I had no choice. At first, I tried to avoid public events. You know, corrosive media attention, intrigue, and gossip, this all sickens me. But I pretended to be the wife of another man, and that was even worse. So, they prepared a double for me. When I when I would say that something does not go as planned, in that scenario, you just wipe out the embarrassments. If they had time to bring my double to more or less successful similarity level, they would have killed me a long time ago. Miraculously, me and my daughters, we managed to escape. Now, for obvious reasons, I cannot name the people who have helped us to stop this terrible dramatization and helped us escape. This divorce that happened, that was my deliverance, and we're better off now since live Abroad. Now... Is this scary? Yes, but let's get sceptical. Why would she say that? The obvious sceptical answer would be that she just wants media attention and wants to make a sensationalist announcement. If so, then she's blatantly failed. Putin's ex-wife isn't a celebrity. And she hasn't been giving any interviews since or looking for any publicity. Even this article was dismissed outright and quite much overlooked, And she's remarried and changed her name to to what I mentioned before. Well, in the best traditions of my fellow mystery podcasts from Dark Myths, I'm not overlooking anything. I'm an investigative journalist, damn it. My job is to dig deeper. So that's what I did. Before we judge a witness account, we should judge their character. Maybe she's a pathological liar or something. That is what I tried to do, and I'm quite surprised that it didn't that I didn't manage to find online any other articles that had done what I did here. I was pretty sure that they would draw some interesting conclusions, but there just are none. so you're hearing a first case compilation of all the evidence, actually, because I doubt that there are any other around that are Latin Russian, and even those that I found were not complete. So, here you go, listeners. This is my gift to you in the first anniversary. Now, obviously, we should find out if something about their marriage life and divorce was strange. We should look at how their marriage and divorce are looking like. And we should look at any discrepancies if we were to prove or disprove what she's saying. Because I'm taking this seriously. And you know what? That stuff is out there. From an article on Putin's divorce... From New York Times by Masha Lippmann, 8th of June 2013. Quote, On Thursday evening, a television reporter approached Vladimir Putin and his wife Lyudmila in the Grand Kremlin Palace. The first couple was leaving after the first act of the ballet La Esmeralda. After a few minutes of small talk about music and dancing, she asked a most impossible question. Why did they appear so rarely in public together? Putin's response, confirmed by his wife. They had decided it was time for them to divorce. This is not the first time ballet happened to be the setting of a Russian personal and political drama. Back in August 1991, state television was playing the the swan lake just as communists attempted a coup. The scene in Kremlin was so theatrical, so obviously staged, it is inconceivable in Putin's Russia that a journalist would ask the president a question so personal without prompting. The venue was strangely appropriate. Putin and his estranged wife were standing next to each other, but not too close. They referred to each other formally, with name and patronymic. Their sentences were neither too long nor too abrupt. This is our joint decision, Putin said. I join the words of Vladimir Vladimirovich, Lyudmila Putina echoed. This was indeed our joint decision. Putin said again, We practically don't see each other. Each one has his and her own life. And his wife Putina. Our marriage is over because we practically don't see each other, she concluded. One can say that this is a civilized divorce. Putin has appeared around wild animals, from tigers to polar bears at the wheel of all kinds of vehicles, from a military vessel to a a strategic bomber, fighting on tatami and riding on horseback. He was an athlete, a macho. We've seen him on vacation, swimming in an energetic butterfly stroke, and in the pool as a daily exercise with his dog or around other people's children. On one occasion, he kissed a little boy on his belly for the cameras. What he was not was a family man. Putin never appeared in public with his family. The Russian people have never even seen either of his two daughters. On the very rare occasions that he even mentioned his daughters, Putin hadn't said their names. He just refers to them as they. His wife, Lyudmila, barely acted as the first lady. After the first years of his tenure, she stopped accompanying him abroad and more or less disappeared from the scene. A common, half-serious suggestion was that Putin had her locked in a nunnery just as the Russian Tsars did when they sought to get rid of unwanted tsarinas. Lyudmila Putin's absence was especially striking at a recent Eastern Church service where Putin stood with Dmitry Medvedev, his substitute president and current prime minister, and Medvedev's wife. The trio was then joined by the Moscow mayor Sergei Sobyanin. An unknown Photoshop master promptly covered Sobyanin's head with a lady's scarf, so he and Putin would look like a couple. The image was a great hit on social networks. End quote. Now think about it. How does that sound in context with what the Putin's wife is saying? Note that Putin and his wife announced their divorce in July 2013. Since then, she all but disappeared from view, being seen in public only once during this time, while the Russian president forbids any questions about his private life although he did make it clear in 2014 that he was happy in his love life. Yeah, Ludmilla disappeared until the interview with Die Welt. If she wanted publicity, why wait for such a long time? Almost two years. It makes more sense for a publicity stunt to do such a sensationalist announcement while the cameras are on her and are rolling because because of the divorce. Now, doesn't it? Maybe... Just maybe it was because she only managed to get to some form of safety by that time. At least, that's the logical conclusion that I can make about her reasoning. But, obviously, I can't make any conclusive statements here. What I can do, however, is give you some more context. You see, as there is no traditional role for the first lady in Russian culture... What usually happens is that the more lenient leaders are open about their family lives as everybody else in the world. I mean, you can see Obama's wife with him often, and she does a lot of things. And same here with Latvian first ladies. And in Soviet era, Raisa Gorbacheva was well known to Soviet people and was well loved. And nobody made fun of Gorbi when she died. Boris Yeltsin had a huge family. He showed them in public a lot, and his wife helped to improve his public image. Nina Khrushcheva, the wife of Nikita Khrushchev, went to foreign trips with her husband and was with him all the time. Now, she wasn't much of an influence, but it was obvious that they loved each other. Now, in comparison, let's look at the more oppressive leaders from the century. Stalin drove his wife to suicide and had her relatives executed. He basically only loved his granddaughter from all of his family members. Brezhnev launched a creeping re-Stalinization. His tenure was associated with persecutions of dissidents and the use of punitive psychiatry. His wife, much like Putin's, was hidden from public view. Their daughter came to be known for her passion for jewelry and alcohol and ended her days in a psychiatric asylum. Now. This doesn't pass much for scientific evidence, but in which category would you put Putin in? Especially since he glorifies Stalin. Oh, and he had a semi-public affair in 2008 with a gymnast. But let us look even more in the past with Putin's family. An article in The Guardian, June 6, 2005, At Home with the Putins, by Nick Patton Walsh, who translated an article from a Russian state newspaper and some other newspapers who came out at the time. Yes, yes, I know The Guardian is considered to be a tabloid, but let's just look at it in the context. Maybe we can find something useful there. I mean, just because it's a tabloid and writes such sensationalist things and without much evidence on its own doesn't mean we can't compare it with other evidence gained from other articles, you know. So let's just do right that. And when you do that, it looks outright bizarre especially when reading these later articles on what his ex-wife says and the one on divorce. You can just spot this creepiness and fakeness screaming all over this one, but it also shows some nice tendencies. The article even starts that way, if you looked at the context. Quote, She is the normally taciturn wife of the Russian president, but in a rare interview with the country's state newspaper, Lyudmila Putin spills the beans on everything, from eating habits to Vladimir's golden rules about women. And more fragments from the article. Quote, to some, it may sound dysfunctional and autocratic, but in Russia, it is the model family. The man, a terse, authoritarian workaholic, comes home, knackered, to his kitchen table in the leafy suburbs between 11.30 and midnight, slumps into a chair and drinks a glass of yogurt and milk. The family knows this is the time to approach him to seek his consent for things, but but never to ask him about work. He grunts, makes dark and ironic jokes that bemuse his long-serving and adoring wife, seldom asks his family's advice about the myriad of incurable problems besetting his brow and beloved motherland. And then he goes to sleep. Such is the draining effect of a life in the KGB that somehow led you to the top of the Kremlin. In a rare glimpse inside Che's Putin, Ludmila Putin, Russia's first lady, has revealed in a comparatively in-depth interview this week to the state newspaper, Rashiskaya Gazeta and two other dailies, the pecking order and mores of the life with the ineffaceable Vladimir, Vladimirovich and their two daughters, Katya and Masha. This is one of the few times when you hear their names, actually. Continuing on. All the family members know that when you want to discuss something with him, you wait his arrival at the kitchen table for his evening glass of kefir, said Putina, who's 48, who's 48 at the time, and again, that's 2005. At this time, you can talk, ask him about the day, she said of the former spy who appears to never let his guard down, knowing not to break state's, bring state secrets home. Putina said that, although her husband is a walking encyclopedia of political and historical knowledge, Any questions have to be confined to general information. She added, to ask him about plans regarding work is, of course, useless. Better not to bother. Isn't that nice? And it sounds completely normal. After all, it was printed in Russian state newspapers to make Putin look nice and approachable. You can't really blame the Western lying media for this. No, no, no. This is normal in Russia. This is their own papers, state-approved papers even. The article even says the interview text that appears in each of these three newspapers is identical, suggesting that Putin's spin doctors may have had as much play in this conception as the four participants of the interview. But you know what? Then you put everything together and yeah, it becomes more and more creepy as you go on. Here's more from the same source. The Putins have always gone to extreme lengths to appear the antidote of Russia's previous ruling families, the Gorbachevs and Yeltsins, in which the women were seen to have too great an influence over their presidential men. President Putin's domestic dogma appears to have given him the same complete control over his three women as he seeks over Russia's political life. In September 2002, the Kremlin's first lady laid out his domestic constitution in a new authorized biography by, of her husband, she said he had two golden rules about women. First, a woman must do everything in the home. And second, you should not praise a woman, otherwise you will spoil her. And the article continues by saying that it's a little surprise that Putin wife's view on the first lady's job description is to stand harmlessly by her man. Yudmila said, above all, you have to, to first of all think how not to damage activities of the president. Putina said when her husband's second term expires in 2008, she's not sure what to expect. Asked what she wants him to do, she said to be a happy man. Now, doesn't that look staged? I bet she was genuinely confused when asked about the second term. That must have not been on the script. And for me, it's kind of obvious that she really wasn't saying what she was thinking at the time. Okay. You might say, this shows Putin's deep involvement with the system that seems to have a lot of involvement in his family life and that he was a douchebag and a tyrant to his wife. But what does it do with him being dead? His wife might have made that part up as a revenge plot and even if she didn't, why would the system kill him? He's working so well. And I must agree with this statement as this is a people's history podcast, not a rumor mill after all. So I dug deeper. Sometimes I envy the Astonishing Legends guys for their research core, or Strange Matters and Rumor Flies for them being more than one person researching and doing all of this. And now Jordan Bonaparte from the Nighttime podcast, yeah, that guy knows my pain. Anyways, yeah, I dug deeper to figure out this Putin-might-be-dead thing, as that needs to be addressed first in context of every political occurrence in Russia, before looking at any why questions. And the answers? The answers are astounding. Let's look at his public disappearances first. There have been quite a few of those. The most recent one was his disappearance from the site of the Russians after the collapse of the A321 in Egypt in November 2015, when he expressed his condolences via Twitter, left some orders from the state's Minister of Emergencies and the Minister of Health. But the more famous one was on the March of the same year. Again, 2015. Now, I'm translating here from an article in the main, largest Latv- Latvian news site, Delphi LV, the most mainstream we have here. And the article uses many sources, but those are pointed out, so don't worry. Quote, Then, ten days of Putin's absence in the public space... had caused a wave of various rumors that he had a stroke or recovering from Botox injections or he's sitting by the bedside of his alleged lover, the Olympic champion or rhythmic gymnastics Alina Kabaeva, which, according to several European newspapers at the time, gave birth at the Swiss luxury clinic. When, on the 16th of March, the president showed up, commenting on the rumors about his poor health, he replied in a joking manner, without gossip, life would be boring. As the Times wrote with reference to sources in Russian military intelligence, quote, the Russian culture of politics and leadership is underdeveloped and unable to recognize any diseases or weaknesses of the Russian leader. According to the journalist, and independent military observer, Pavel Felgengauger, which he expressed in a broadcast on Sky News, Vladimir Putin has always disappeared when things go really bad. So it was the submarine Kursk In exactly the same situation after the disaster of A321, he was quoted on Russian television Intov. According to the journalist, the Russian state is actively considering a version of a technical problem on the flight KGL-9268, avoiding public statements that the disaster could be a result of terrorist activities or other crimes. The host asked about why Putin these days haven't made any public statements. Felgenkauer noted that, quote, it's his distinctive trait, when things go really bad, he disappears. For example, after the tragedy with the submarine Kursk in the year 2000, he did not make public statements for quite a long time. So you're right, if Putin is not visible, then things are very serious, said a Russian commentator. But at that time, other interesting theories were also floating in the air. Some evidence here is proved by an article in Bloomberg about his March disappearance, called Putin Disappears Like a Dictator, by Leonid Bershitsky. From the article, quote, It's still impossible for an outsider to tell where Putin is or what he's up to. But it isn't too early to draw conclusions from this episode. It offers evidence enough that Russia has become an outright dictatorship. No other kind of state would be so opaque, nor its citizens so preoccupied with their ruler. Putin's predecessor, Boris Yeltsin, was prone to disappearances. He liked to drink and had a weak heart. Yeltsin's heart became a particularly serious issue during the run-up to the 1996 presidential election, in which he competed against a strong communist candidate. Not long before the vote, he suffered a heart attack that his aides hid from voters. After he won, Kremlin spin doctors became increasingly creative in answering any questions about the president's health. On August 19, 1996, a presidential spokesman, Sergei Yastremzinsky, initiated a meme when he said, in response to such a query, that Yeltsin's handshake was strong. Today, and this is still quoting from the article, an Echo Moskvi radio reporter evoked in an interview with Putin's spokesman, Dmitry Peskov asking him about the president's handshake. It breaks hands, Peskov replied sarcastically. And another excerpt from the same article I'm quoting here from Bloomberg. Peskov has never previously had to account for unexpected absences by his boss. Quite the opposite. Putin has tended to be unnecessarily demonstrative about the strength of his handshakes, taking pains to always appear fit and energetic. He has not dropped out of sight for more than a day since the early years of his 15-year rule when he briefly went off the radar after the submarine Kursk sank in 2000 and when terrorists seized hundreds of hostages in a Moscow theater in 2002. The two incidents were major crisis for Putin, but he has since weathered others of a similar magnitude without dropping out of sight. This month, March 2015, however, he has again disappeared. The last time he was seen was a week ago, on March the 5th, when he met with an Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi in Moscow. Since then, he has cancelled talks with the presidents of Belarus and Kazakhstan, the signing of a treaty with South Ossetia, and an appearance at a meeting of top brass at the FSB, Russia's domestic intelligence service. The daily RBC, Russian broadcasting channel, undertook an investigation of Putin's meeting schedule and claimed to have discovered discrepancies of the official site Kremlin.ru. According to the paper, Putin's meeting with the governor of the northwestern region of Karelia, reported on the site as having taken place on March 11th, had actually occurred a week earlier. Indeed, a Karelian website wrote about it on March the 4th. Now, interesting, isn't it? It somewhat coincides with the Lyudmila's interview in Die Welt. Maybe she thought that it's safe to give it since Putin was missing and she saw the pattern again. Now, those are just opinions and not real hard scientific claims. I'm not qualified to give those, but it just makes me think and see the patterns here repeating themselves. And talking about the Kursk, which marks his first disappearance and thus is relevant to our story. Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty ran an article in August 2015 written by Inna Denisova and Robert Colson, named Kursk Anniversary, Submarine Disaster Was Putin's First Lie. They interview the lawyer Boris Kuznetsov in the article and it shows that the systems and the Putin's involvement in them were in place back then already. The lies began with the sinking of the Kursk, Kuznetsov says. When the Kursk sank, the government began interfering with the legal and law enforcement systems. The government began gathering all the mass media under its control. The entire process of undermining democracy in Russia in many regards began with this. Kuznetsov, 67 at the time of the interview last year, represented the families of the 55 of the drowned Kursk seamen. Now he has political asylum in the United States. The Russian government has opened a criminal case against him and issued an international arrest warrant for him. He says the charges, which accuse him of revealing the secrets because he demonstrated to a Russian court that the FSB, the Federal Security Service, was illegally wiretapping a member of parliament, were intended to prevent him from carrying out his high-profile legal work. The year when this happened was 2000, KGB systems of surveillance were still in place, as Yeltsin had used them and morphed them into the FSB. And in 2015, we can still see that they're there. They've grown and adapted and are playing a large part of how the Russian government is run. Especially with the unresolved murders of Nemtsov, Politkovskaya, Litvinenko, and other oppositionaries. And how they were kept in place? Remember that Putin was a KGB colonel, a spy in East Germany. From Wikipedia, but this time, if it's on purpose... If this was something Russian propaganda and internet trolls didn't agree with, they just edited it out. It's wildly known that they monitor the Wikipedia pages and look for any anti-Russia statements with the help of the hired trolls. Now, I've encountered them on this site more than once myself with all the death threats and whatnot. So, Wikipedia, which obviously is the Putin-approved version, otherwise it wouldn't be there, states that, quote, Putin was a KGB foreign intelligence officer for 16 years, rising to the rank of Lieutenant colonel before retiring in 1991 to enter politics in his native St. Petersburg. He moved to Moscow in 1996 and joined President Boris Yeltsin's administration, rising quickly through the ranks and becoming acting president on 31st December 1999 when Yeltsin resigned. So what can we draw from this? Yeltsin elevating young Putin out of kindness... How about Yeltsin accepting someone with deep KGB connections and ties in his ranks to keep the old KGB system, now FSB, running smoothly? Using the same channels and the same efficiency. Why? Because the economical collapse of the transition between socialism and capitalism. The people were starving. Yeltsin's power at the time is shaky. He doesn't want another putsch. He needs people from the old system. And again... The same Wikipedia article, obviously approved by Russia's internet forces, states, quote, Putin was called to Moscow and in June 1996 became a deputy chief of the presidential property management department. Headed by Pavel Borodin, he occupied this position until March 1997. During his tenure... Putin was responsible for the foreign property of the state and organized transfer of the former assets of the Soviet Union and Communist Party to the Russian Federation. Oh wow, what a coincidence, really. But why Putin? Why call a random administrator from the St. Petersburg City Council to perform this important task? Putin doesn't seem qualified according to his CV at the time. But comrades, KGB of course. Now... This is just an opinion, but if Putin didn't have connections within the old system, he wouldn't have advanced anywhere. He had to have them, otherwise he wouldn't have done his job as efficiently as he did, and we wouldn't have FSB operating in Russia using the old KGB networks and methods to this day. This is the system I've been talking about, folks. This one. But if you stare in the abyss, the abyss stares back. If Putin's using his old contacts, then the old contacts are using young Putin. Obviously, he doesn't have much power at the time in 1996, so his old colleagues and bosses can influence him. And this being Russia, the successor of the old USSR, it just makes sense that they were helping Yeltsin out, not because of gratitude, but because of personal gain. To get personal wealth, to gain power, to be on the boards of all the Russia's state enterprises, especially Gazprom, to be able to launder money to them. So it kind of makes sense that Yeltsin just communicated with the old system saying... Something like, okay, help me out now, and later I'll make Putin the president. He, being an old alcoholic democrat, believed that Putin will serve his time, they'll steal enough money, and then someone else will take the office and fix the country. Well now, there's never enough money. So Putin becomes the president. But the old KGB structures still have info on him. They must have had it. They had information on all the spies in foreign countries in case they defect. Something to blackmail them, something to keep them in check, something to threaten them, something to destroy them and their loved ones. This has been reported by many, many, many accounts of people, defectors, journalists and historians. Now, do you think that just because USSR collapsed, his superiors, Putin's superiors, just mysteriously lost the information on Putin? And is it easier to launder money and do corrupt things as the public face of the country? Or is it as the man or men or women behind the man, while not drawing any attention for as long as possible while your puppet is on the throne doing your bidding? And look at all the Gazprom associated things purges of the leadership of the major companies. Putin put his people on the councils afterwards and has a private caged community, luxury villas which he's sharing with his friends, the same people he put on these boards after they threw the so-called oligarchs out. But it would be really, really easy for those people to do something about Putin if they wanted to. Really easy, as colonels don't run the system. They know it, but there are people above it who really know it and run the whole thing. Sure, I've got no solid evidence here, call me nuts, but... It just makes sense if you look at it from the historical context. Heck, Putin has so much in common with all the old Soviet leaders that they're even publishing his complete speeches in books, which is wildly mocked on the internet as being a relic of the old Soviet era when every leader did so. Oh, and about the murder of Litvinenko? Yeah, remember that guy. He died in around 2006-2007. There was a famous case about him. He was killed because he ran away and he died because he was injected with polonium, a radioactive substance which normally can't pierce the skin, but if it gets in your organism, the alpha particles really ruin your organs and you die, which happened with him, which killed him after suffering in the hospital, losing a lot of weight, all of his hair and everything, just confirming radiation disease, uncurable radiation disease. You see, the British investigators, the secret police, the Scotland Yard, ran an investigation on this. Oh, and according to these investigators, the dose of polonium found in Litvinenko's body after death, because polonium was only found there after he died, yeah, it should have costed about 10 million United States dollars. Someone really tried hard. Oh, and this stuff? Yeah. According to the investigators, it can only be obtained in a nuclear reactor, and this isn't really sold anywhere. So only a very highly developed high-tech organization or a state that would be a nuclear power would even be capable of this. And this is not me, folks. This is Great Britain's Secret Service report after Litvinenko's murder in 2006. They don't imply anyone, obviously, because that was not war, but come on, really? Even more, the famous Russian opposition activist Polietkovskaya, an independent journalist, wrote about Litvinenko's murder in her book a Russia's Diary. Talking about how Russian secret service must be involved, and you know what? Ended up being murdered herself. <laughs> now, if I die after this podcast, folks, you really know who did it. You see, the interesting part is that Alexander Litvinenko was a KGB officer, also an ex-spy, before he escaped to the United Kingdom to. Avoid ...persecution and being critical of Putin. He was exposing the system. Well now, his ex-KGB colleague, another officer, Yuri Shvets, announced on the 13th of March 2015 that Putin had killed Litvinenko because he had proof that Putin and his cronies had organized a money laundering scheme for a Colombian drug cartel. He had written an official report on the scheme too. He wasn't mentioning Putin there, however, but all of this had cost Putin and his cronies, or entourage, called as you will, about 10 to 15 million United States dollars. One of the implied people in the scheme was someone called Viktor Ivanov. You probably haven't heard of him, but he's a really important person. You see, he was the director of the Federal Narcotics Service, which makes sense if you want to launder drugs money. He was the federal director of this narcotics service of Russia from 2008... Until this year 2016. Oh, and Mr. Ivanov. He was a former KGB officer who served in the KGB Director of, of, of Leningrad and its successors from nineteen seventy-seven up to nineteen ninety-four. In october nineteen ninety-four, Mr. Ivanov resigned from Federal Security Committee and was appointed Chief of the Administrative Staff on the St. Petersburg Major's Office. In nineteen ninety nine. This ally of Putin succeeded Nikolai Patrushev as the head of the Internal Security Department of Russia's FSB. Now, how does that sound, and what does it say about the influence of the old system and the new one? In addition to this, since January 5, 2000, he has been a deputy head of the Presidential Staff for Personnel appointed by Vladimir Putin himself. Since June 2002, this is all in addition, not... not Ending each other things, by the way, folks. Since June 2000, Ivanov has also been the chairman of the board of directors of the result of the merger of OGSC Almas Ante Air Defense Concern. Continuing with this, in addition to all of this, since November 4th, 2004, this guy has also been the chairman of the board of directors of JSC Aeroflot Airlines. He's considered to be one of Putin's closest allies by the United States government, and is currently blacklisted as the part of the sanctions against Russia. And this is just one of the examples of the people Putin has elevated, put into board positions, and who are running the enterprises and ministries in the Russian country. Any questions? By this point, believing that all of this is just a coincidence, and that Putin has zero connections with the old KGB, and that the system just disappeared overnight, and that everyone suddenly became honest... Yeah, that makes way less sense and doesn't pass the Occam's razor test than the stuff that I'm presenting here. If you don't think so, then I don't even know how obvious a fact must be to serve as evidence, because it really doesn't get more obvious as this. And this also answers why they might want him dead. Putin, being an egoistical maniac, power-hungry monster, must have done something to grab power himself, Tried to wrestle it away from his old superiors and colleagues in the system, and... They would have none of that. But changing a president is risky, you know, you have to fix elections again, it's difficult. But thankfully, KGB in the Soviet Union had a long history of body doubles for its leaders. Stalin had six. Brezhnev had at least a dozen. Even Garbi had two. And after that they, as skeptics would like to believe, they just disappeared, right? Right? Old structures of powerful organizations, the members of which, starting from Khrushchev, who've run the country for many decades, just disappear overnight, right? Because because obviously USSR collapsed, so all the KGB people never must have been honest and not caring, and, and they just left all the power just hanging in there and left. No. No, they don't. This is the Soviet Union. I'm a cynical bastard. They don't. They morph, change names, and do various things, but they do not disappear overnight. That is just so unbelievable that I would really ask someone to prove to me that such structures can disappear overnight before they even start doubting what I'm saying here. Because really, I have heard all the skeptics and they're just saying that no, KGB is gone, the USSR collapsed and KGB w- was went with it. Yeah, but the people stayed in their positions, they kept their jobs, they just turned to FSB. Oh no, no, it's a different organization, they all now firmly believe in democracy at this point. Yeah, all of them, all to the very last man. Really, people? Really? And they call me a a strange person for actually thinking that all this KGB stuff, which is now FSB, is involved in the government of Russia. Now, call me crazy, but this is not crazy. Crazy is the optimistical belief that everyone's honest and that Russia operates the way Western countries and real democracies do. You see, we can even see these scriptures in place today. So it just makes sense that Putin has some influence on body doubles. He must have some body doubles. Or at least he had some body doubles. And like I said at the beginning, even if he isn't dead, then by this point, he's definitely using body doubles for public appearances. And yeah, it's high time I proves I provide some evidence for that, my skeptic friends. And Mr. Yeltsin... He had a ton of rumors and evidence about all of this, about his body doubles as well before him. So let's look at this in detail, shall we? First off, right after his disappearance in 2015, and before that in 2010, and quite a few times all along, for his rule, a lot of Russian and Western media sites were wondering about his looks. A popular question, like asked in an article by the People's Magazine on the 16th of December 2011, was has Putin gone under the knife? Note that it's before his 10-day disappearance in 2015. Here's from the article, and we'll have pictures on the site, theeasternborder.lv, so that you can judge yourselves about all of this, what I'm saying here, and that's going to be accompanying this show. Quote, Notice on the right, in the photo of Putin 2.0, notice on the right that his forehead is perfectly smooth. His cheeks aglow, and those deep lines that once characterized his handsome, well, at least to some, face, are now gone with the Baltic wind. Britain's Guardian speculates that Botox did the trick, and so suggests that he also has undergone some niptox. As quoted by the Guardian from the liberal Russian magazine New Times, four plastic surgeons analyzed Putin's new look and concluded that he had Botox... In the forehead, his lower eyelids lifted and his cheekbones firmed up with fillers. All in the bid to make him look more appealing as he faces an upcoming election next March. To that end, CBS News reporters on Friday reported that a brand new poll shows that he's slipping on his approval rating to 51% down from 61% last month. And here's from a Daily Mail article in 2015. And yes, yes, it's another tabloid, but what can you do? I'm combining all of this, I'm not taking any of these in face value, I'm just combining these and analyzing them, and what shows is amazing. Quote, When Russian President Vladimir Putin appeared on TV today to insist none of the country's troops are positioned in the Ukraine, yeah, because that totally happened and he absolutely didn't lie back then in 2015, <clears throat> that's, that's my comment here, he looked decidedly fresh-faced for a man accused of warmongering. The wrinkles of the 62-year-old's forehead, clearly visible in his previous pictures, have disappeared, while his skin looks smooth, taut, tanned and younger than ever. And as the series of pictures show, the series of pictures have been posted on my website with addition to some of my own, the Russian president's face has changed dramatically over the years, amid persistent rumors that he has undergone cosmetic surgery to give himself a more youthful look. A black and white picture taken in 1991, when he was 37 years old, shows him looking gaunt, and black bags under his eyes are clearly visible. In a photo dated of the year 2000, Putin's hair still has tons of blonde, but the signs of aging are becoming more apparent of his features. Fast forward to 2010, and the action man, now 57, looks tired and haggard after taking part in a judo session. Questions? over whether Putin had gone under the knife came to the fore in 2011 where the previous article came from, by the way when the then-prime minister was photographed with a yellow bruise on his face plastic surgeons at the time told Mail Online that botox injections, a facelift, cheek fillers and a brow lift and removal of bags under his eyes would have helped improve his aging features although his spokesman denied at the time he had any work done and yes, you see this article is referencing the previous one uh, four years earlier But in the same year, he announced he wanted to become the next president of Russia, leading commentators to ask if that was the reason behind his new look. In December 2013, after around two years in office as president, he looked vastly different again, his face puffy but wrinkle-free. And in March this year, that's 2015 for you folks, because I'm still quoting from the article, the Kremlin was forced to deny rumors that he was unwell or had undergone surgery. Oh, well, they have to deny these rumors all the time, don't they? When the president disappeared for 10 days, canceling a string of public appearances, when he emerged to meet with the president of Kyrgyzstan, his face was puffy and shiny, and eyes only able to partially open, leading journalists to wonder about the cause of his new look. However, Putin has remained tight-lipped about his absence, laughing off the suggestions of poor health, or rumors that he had been attending to the birth of a love child, saying it would be boring without gossip the quote I mentioned earlier. And you know what? Maybe the officials aren't lying. Maybe Putin doesn't have plastic surgery all the time. Maybe they're just body doubles, either appearing for Putin because of Putin, because he just wants the body doubles, or because the real Putin is long gone. Because plastic surgeries might be needed to make a body double look like Putin. And it's kind of weird that this macho man, all this image, would be so concerned about how he looks all the time. Or maybe he just wants to look like more macho all the time. It is kind of weird. But if you think about it, body doubles would most likely need plastic surgery. And these are clear signs with evidence that he has had some. And, finally, after we've gone through all of this, and it's crazy already, Here's the most damning evidence that made me really think that Putin has, at the very least, body doubles appearing everywhere. And I'm talking about his German skills. He used to be a spy in East Germany. He's supposed to be fluent in German. Completely fluent, otherwise he wouldn't be a spy there during the Soviet era. But his skills are all over the place. And I mean literally all over the place. Now, let us listen to a fragment of his speech from 2001. Just early in his presidency, where he is addressing a German audience about their culture.
0: Sehr geehrte Damen und Herren, gerade eben sprach ich von der Einheit der europäischen Kultur. Der neue Jahrhundert ihrer Zeit diese Einheit, nicht den Ausbruch zweier schrecklicher Kriege auf dem Kontinent, zwei Kriege im Laufe, im Zuge eines Jahrhunderts. Sie störte auch nicht an der Errichtung der Berliner Mauer die zum unheilen Symbol der tiefen Spaltung Europas wurde. Unsererseits existiert die Berliner Mauer nicht mehr. Sie ist vernichtet. Es wäre angebracht, sich heute noch einmal daran zu erinnern, wie es dazu gekommen ist. Ich bin mir sicher, großartige Veränderungen in der Welt, in Europa und, äh, und im Raum der ehemaligen Sowjetunion. He speaks clear and fluent
1: German, right? Complex, thought-out sentences, fluent language. You can sense that he's worried, because it's new in job, but this man definitely knows his German. Now, for your comparison, the following is Putin in 2011. Soon after all the fuss in the media that he's not looking completely like himself, and that he's looking different, came out. And he's speaking German on a TV show. Well, he's being driven around in a car, and he's showing Moscow to a German TV show host. Listen to how he's talking right now, and I'm not even talking about the voice here.
0: The report is I Yeah. Das Where comes this negative attitude of lessons in the From the angst. Angst for von Russland. Mit unser Maßstab, unsere Atomwaffen, unsere Möglichkeiten in verschiedenen äh, anderen äh, Gebieten. Aber das ist alten Denken. Der Westen hat eine ultimative Forderung. Sie sollen so sein wie der Westen. Sie sollen die Regeln des Westens gefälligst akzeptieren. Ich muss so sein wie
1: As you can hear, Putin is way less worried, but his Russian accent is much, much stronger. He understands what's being said to him, but he answers in short, simple sentences without any of the structure noticeable in the first speech. About on the level that people who have taken a few years in German classes would, but not much more, not spies, not trained individuals in the Soviet era who managed to pull it up. But this guy, yeah, he has been a spy in East Germany for many years, and he has shown that he can do better. Much better. And you know, you can kind of maybe talk about it that he has forgotten to how to speak in German in a while, but this level level deterioration is just terrible. But that's not all, folks. Here's Putin in a twenty thirteen TV interview for a German news channel WDR. Answering questions about politics. Die Öffentlichkeit
0: hat die Erklärung, da soll eingeschüchtert werden. Warum handeln Ihre Behörden so? Ich glaube, Sie schüchtern die deutsche Öffentlichkeit ein. Es passiert doch gar nichts Ähnliches und man muss die Menschen nicht einschüchtern. Man muss objektiv die Entwicklungen beleuchten und was ist denn die objektive Beleuchtung? Ende vergangenen Jahres wurde in Russland ein Gesetz verabschiedet nach
1: dessen Maßgabe He needs a translator. He doesn't even speak in German. He answers in Russian. It can even be heard under the TV translator's voice. Pause this show. Go back a bit, turn it real loud and listen once again. Just before his Lothar part, there's this pause and there are whispers in the background. That's his translator. Now, I got this from YouTube, okay? And he doesn't even understand German. In the video, which I took this from, he has an earphone in his ear. A blatantly large earphone, which can clearly be seen. It's not even hidden in any way or form, he's just there. And he only answers the host's questions after they've been translated to him. You can hear the translation in his ear too if you listen closely, so please do. And he asks questions in Russian to his aides later, not in this fragment, but a bit later in this episode, before he answers. Now, you can explain the differences in his German skills with age and lack of practice, but actually no, no, you can't do it, because... Lack of practice doesn't exist, because he has quite a lot of that. He's been speaking to Angela Merkel with Germany privately a lot, and German, as reported, and has given a lot of interviews. Now, all of this, all of this lack of knowledge of German just happens suddenly. But this is just two years after the last interview, two years. And at the last interview, he understands the questions perfectly without a translator. And even if you lose the ability to speak in German... You should totally still understand it. I mean, you might lose speaking skills, but damn it, losing the ability to understand what's being said to you in just two years? Well, whether it's brain damage or it's a completely different person. But, but, it gets even better. Here's Putin, right now, 2016. A little fragment from the Russian Times news channel, Russian Times being totally non-biased, to all of those who call this channel biased, I'll just allow them to explain itself, really.
2: Now, a question and answer
0: session at a journalist forum in the Russian city of St. Petersburg saw President Putin stepping into the shoes of an interpreter after a question from the audience over Russian national values. Vladimir Putin jumped in to translate the speech of a former German MP. Herr Präsident, da bin ich aber gründlich missverstanden worden. Ich habe schon gesagt, dass wir. Меня неправильно поняли, говорит наш гость. пожалуйста, пожалуйста. You are asking
1: me to believe that during his reign of presidency, Putin has managed to lose all understanding with German. He has lost his ability to speak and then managed to regain it back to the level that he can serve as a translator to be able to convey complex political questions back to a TV audience. And the last part happened in just a bit over two years. Really? I'm not even talking about how his voice has changed over the years, that might be recording quality. Or that he just doesn't have time to learn proper German again, because he's so busy running the whole country. But seriously, let's look at all of this together. His KGB allies speak against him. His ex-wife speaks against him. A ton of suspicious murders happen. His looks change. His German skills are literally all over the place. Now, at the very least, it's certainly super strange, and all these coincidences put together do show that the theory of Putin being dead and the government being run from the shadows by ex-KGB guys using the same system certainly has some valid points, at least in my book. That, or at least... Like I said before, he's using body doubles quite a lot. And is a major douchebag. I'm honestly convinced that at least this is the case here. And this is the best case scenario and that's not pretty good either. Anyway, I have presented all the evidence that I could find, ordered it, worked with it, analyzed it, and yeah. Hopefully, we'll make such special episodes in the future as well. This is something to think about. If we'll find something interesting, we'll definitely do it. But Makes you think, doesn't it? Because even stranger things have happened on the eastern border. After all of this, as there was no info part in this one, and this is a special episode, here's me and Alice talking about the show a bit, as this is our official one-year of the eastern border birthday episode after all. And that's for the fans, so if you are not interested, you can just turn the show off now, okay? I, need, I think we all need some chill and a look into the future. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the part where we celebrate our one-year anniversary with um coffee this time, because we're out of beer. Woo! Well, yeah, this this happens to be this uh, kind of exact episode of our one-year podcasting venues, and we have encountered a lot of weird and strange things during this time. I'm, I'm happy with Alice here. She's my greatest support and biggest love. Hello! Yeah, I hope I hope you kind of manage all of this. And yeah, wow, we've we've grown from a small podcast to quite a large one, actually. i know there's there's quite a lot of things that we have encountered during this time. For one, like all all of the stereotypes about Eastern Europe, and especially since since Brexit. And one of the things I want to cover is that I don't know how do you think having you managed to educate people about the Baltics, Alice?
2: I think we've managed to do it about the history side of Baltics. Um, not. Not maybe the current that much, sometimes, but mostly the history. I hope I hope people have a better grasp of what it was like here, and maybe in the future we'll do more about what it's like here now.
1: Yeah, I mentioned that on the show already, but I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of weird because uh, in the podcasting community, people are really nice to us, and I'm kind of proud that we managed to get into dark myths. And you know what? That's <laughs> I guess that's actually the the only part where we're like, really lucky, and I'm not sure the dark myths guys understand how much they have. Helped us during the show.
2: Yeah, props to you guys. You're awesome.
1: Yeah, and and I, I like I like all the plugs and, and the stuff. Well, no one still knows us in Latvia, so.
2: No, we have uh, about uh forty four people listening to us from Latvia. So ciao, <laughs> VCM.
1: Yeah, and this is the part where we kind of kind of talk about the intro. But really, huge thanks to your Patreon supporters. And and all of you guys who donate us through PayPal and tell your friends all about our show If you haven't told your friends about this show or iTunes, please do so It it keeps Alice happy
2: A while ago we had a a little thingy that we were getting married And it looks like we're going to do it this August So thank you guys, you've really helped us a lot
1: Yeah, so that's that's the important part that we really appreciate all of this And also the, the bad criticism that you give us and the good one as well because we try our best. And, and although we have received death threats, government called names, told us that we're biased. Some people have told us that we should be more funny. Some people have told us that we, should be, that, should be, that we should be less funny. Kind of hard to try to appease all of the listener base.
2: To those who are saying that we're biased, of course, I would like to have a long discussion about that. Because we're mostly presenting stories from people with additional facts so that you have a timeline of what is going on but mostly mostly it is stories and stories as themselves are of course biased we're we're not a history channel we are a people's history channel
1: aliens did it yeah but on the other hand um alice alice has had her first experience editing this and i don't know Alice, Alice pushed me through this because I've had a lot of great ideas in my time and Alice really pushed me through, actually forced me to make this show. So even though you don't hear on her on the show that often, she's really there to edit everything and she's a really good editor and she helps out me a lot and I hope that in the future she, she'll she continue uh, with this show and maybe help me out on other podcasts. So I just have to say the largest, most amazing thanks to Alice for all of this I don't know. Did you even think this was a good idea when we started? Why, why did you push me to do this? Because, wow, we, we've grown so much, really.
2: You didn't hate your job, but you were just not doing anything for yourself and you wanted to do this. But I had to tell you, you know, okay, that's cool, but then you should just do it and not just talk about it. So, so um, yeah, push the first episode. You were nervous and shaking like a leaf. And uh, I was nervous, because I hadn't edited anything before, and yeah, now we're here. Now you're talking very, very loudly and confidently, and telling me how to talk, and you've got all these, this background knowledge, and yeah, all, all under one year, or now it's over one year, so... It's, it's a about
1: one year. The most interesting part is that Alice is not a fa- fan of Soviet history. She's learning oh, no, as she that, goes.
2: That's not true. It's not that I'm not a fan. I'm just, uh, I'm five years younger than you and, and I've had a different experience living in our country now. And uh, I haven't been exposed to that much Sovietness. So I don't have all that background and, and you know, still learning.
1: Oh yeah and there are a couple of myths that we like to debunk first off, no, Alice is not Anna from Lester Bonaparte. <laughs> <laughs> um, people have said that, yeah, no, me.
2: no, my name is Alice. It's nice to meet you uh and uh, secondly, yeah, yeah, we're we're a happy little family. you me and the microphone, baby
1: no but seriously about about the statistics yeah we have we've have grown a lot, we've grown a lot and uh it's kind of strange cuz I'm, I'm a bit of a statistics freak and you know what? so far approximately 10% of our listeners follow us on social media like exactly when when i look at the feed burner and podtrack i see 10% of people following us on twitter and facebook and 1% of you support us wow would be No 1% big.
2: is already a lot of we're very very thankful knowing that we are giving this to you as an audience but we're coming from a place that has about two million residents so that's like a very small american state so one percent Virginia. yeah mm-hmm. west virginia so one percent of you guys which is a lot now is it three thousand and something that's a lot thank you
1: it's a bit more, and and we 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 really we really appreciate what you're doing for us, and we just try to produce as as good content as, as we can. I don't know, some people have in your iTunes reviews called called us different stories, but like really, we're we're normal people. We're we're just trying to do our best, and if you can support us, tell all your friends about this, especially about this episode, because you know I worked really really hard on this one. It meant a lot to me. And we're uh,
2: expecting a lot of death threats from this one. What is the death threat count for right now? Is it...
1: Seven. Seven, Seven. before this episode. Nice. Yeah.
2: Nice. It's 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 amazing.
1: <laughs> um, Yeah, and, and what what really matters, I think, is that I get the story of my people out. And we're... At least I'm dead serious about, about the fact that you're really invited to, to visit Latvia and we'll show you around. We did it once already, and I said this on the Christmas special episode, but... We made it seriously. If you want to visit Latvia, okay, we'll take you to museums. We can arrange that you have a place to stay, and we can show you around everything, really. I I have this kind of Russian accent, which, um, I I don't know, people are saying that I'm losing it, and I'm getting more of it at the same time, even as I work on lesser Bonaparte's not Roma projects. But yeah, uh, sometimes local Americans, which again, we would be very happy if you visited us, Uh, say that they mistake Alice for an American because she's younger than I am. You tell the story, babe.
2: No, I mean, it's not really a story. It's just a common occurrence that if I speak English somewhere, like we have this one craft beer store that is owned by a guy from Minnesota, I think. Iowa. Iowa, sorry. So this guy from Iowa and, and I was there and I was talking and another lady who was also American came in, and she assumed that I was American too, and we had a nice chat. And she didn't even ask if I was; she just assumed that, and it came in context in the conversation. And uh, just just a day or two ago, I was uh, I was in the subway, and this American tourist dude. The, the the eating place, not the actual underground. Yeah, no, sorry. The 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 sandwich place, the subway sandwich place, and yeah, he he heard me speak English on the phone, and then he asked me if I was if I was American or if I just learned the language, and yeah, we had a nice chat. So,
1: as you can see, we're uh, mostly friendly people, as, as our colleagues tend to say that uh, I'm, I'm only slightly evil. <laughs> I don't think I'm evil. No, um, I'm just giving you the best that I can. And, you know, sometimes it's really quite difficult because another thing you might not know is that, for example, this episode took me about 15 pages of, of written out text to make, and I, I script and work hard on this. So that you don't think that I'm just slacking around here and, and Alice is, is working hard on this one. And we are really, thanks to your support for trying to make each episode as great and as, as impressive as we humanly can. And, hey, I, I suppose we're, we're quite successful at this.
2: I mean, how can we judge that? But as long as you like it and as long as you enjoy our content and as long as we can find more things that you would be interested in concerning the Eastern Eastern European history, especially under the Soviet regime, we'll be here to provide
1: Oh yeah, and and really every time we have this outro which says that you should comment and leave your emails and iTunes reviews and and everything, but we really mean that because we read all the emails and we take them to heart. And and whenever we get like a bad one, it's kind of sad. But you know, most most of the bad ones is, is kind of fun most of the
2: today. bad ones we just make fun of, but <laughs> they provide us with a great entertainment. So if you do have constructive criticism, that is kind of negative we of course will take it to you know to heart and we will read it anyway but uh if you're calling us you know government paid drones then yeah you're on the wall of laughter so
1: i wish actually cia would fund us honey that would be like amazing oh yeah
2: shout out to the cia fund us Woo-hoo.
1: You know, we we won that sweet, sweet uh, surveillance money.
2: Sweet, sweet American surveillance money. Yes.
1: It sounds like a great idea. T- too bad they don't. Like, so it's, it's, Not it's, man, yet. I, I, would, I would take their cash, man. <laughs> Otherwise, I don't know. We have a, a lot of listeners in the military. A lot of them. I know that our, our number one fan, Dave. Oh, it's the Dave update time. Dave.
2: Oh, hey, Dave.
1: Uh, yeah, Dave, I didn't do it in the last episode, though I promised this, but but this one is for Dave. Uh, he's been our number one fan since the very first episode when we had, like, I don't know, five listeners. And Three, uh, actually.
2: No, no, we said that we hope that at least three people listen to us, and they were five, so... And
1: one of them was Dave. Dave's been here, because Dave, Dave works in the army, he sits in the office during the night shifts, as far as I get it, and listens to a lot of podcasts, and he's a great fan of ours, and... Uh, we were speaking about all of my evil things, so Dave asked me to do an evil laughter that he should, He said I should practice this. Though, here's for you, Dave. <clears throat> <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: You you asked, we delivered.
2: I hope doesn't. I hope Dave doesn't cut his face shaving this time. Sorry, Dave.
1: No, no Dave, Dave's doing this at work. Dave's Dave's great. And, uh, yeah, if it wasn't for you guys and for Dark Myths, we wouldn't be here. And special thanks goes out to Glenn and Daniel from Lesser Bonaparte. I have sort of replaced Daniel there. He's still a good friend of mine. And, of course, the Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess of Astonishing Legends. You have to give hi to those guys. And, of course, uh, Jordan Bonaparte, Jordan Harbour. Claire from Singing Bones, which is my newfound one of the favorite podcasts of, of all of this. Singing Bones is great, guys. Um, everyone. Daryl Cooper. Oh boy, Daryl Cooper, guy from Martyrdomade, brought me in there. Daniele Bellelli. Rumor Flies, Strange Matters. Everyone I worked with. Ben from West Wittenberg to Westphalia. Robin Pearson from Byzantium. He's not on Darkness, but he's a great guy. And we're, we're like a huge friendly community and you know what, I'm starting to think about all these YouTubers and how they work together It's kind of similar, I suppose
2: Yeah, Dark Myths is similar in that way that we're all very supportive of each other and it's a blessing to be a part of that and again, thank you guys, you're all awesome
1: And a special thanks goes to Daryl who decided to answer my email and just got me there from the middle of nowhere, really You go, Daryl and yeah, I don't know, and we and we did this without any like IndieGoGo or Kickstarter, really.
2: Oh my goodness, don't even get me started. So we were watching this guy on YouTube, um, IDubs, and he was just reviewing all sorts of Kickstarter and uh, IndieGoGo projects. And there are quite a few of them that are basically people asking for money so that they could either get a better computer or a better mic and make like a YouTube gaming channel or a podcast or a freaking blog. And they're asking money (laughs) to start. And let's give us, let's give them our take on this. We started, we both had a job, but, uh, you know, we're students. We were at the time, at least, and I still am. And we're not well off. And we started with what we had and no experience, just putting ourselves out there, trying the best. And it's not even about, of course, you have to produce good content, but it's not even about that. It's about learning how to improve yourself. Putting yourself out there, marketing yourself, finding people who would listen to you, finding people who would promote you, finding people who do the same thing as you, so you can be a part of something. It's a lot of hard work of making yourself known.
1: And, and we wouldn't th- ask for any money if this, this if we didn't feel this product was like good enough, or that we would be cheating you somehow. Where we're not that kind of people that's look down on Latvia, and it kind of is a reason why why we. Well, we don't want to make a Kickstarter project for all of this, even though we kind of could, but...
2: No, see, what's the point? That That is such a bad idea when you want to ask for money for a product you haven't even shown. You haven't even provided any starting episodes. Well, of course, I'm not talking about all of the Kickstarter projects that are like this, but most of them. You just have to start by yourself and build yourself up, because if you're going to... Live off of the money of other people and produce content at some point if your content doesn't live up to that hype, you're not gonna gain back what you've already spent you're not gonna if you're not able to give back to the community what they've given you so oh, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but it just really got it just really grinded my gears yeah
1: no, it's okay because uh, when you think about it, what we're doing here is a lot of people mistake this and they think this is kind of a hobby it's actually a real really hard work. And a lot of effort goes into this. And you know what? We listen to your feedback, we listen to the surveys that you complete. We have access to those and we can see both the likes and the dislikes. And I don't I don't care that, you know, the stats are meant for possibly if we're gonna get them and I hope that will, some sponsors, but mainly I can see the likes and the dislikes and I kinda think about what you like, what you don't like, and all of that stuff. And it's hard work and and it's journalism, to be honest. For me it's journalism because I research these things and I, I put facts together and make new conclusions from them and try to inform people about them. And when people just try to cheat the system by, by scamming things out of it, it's it's kind of weird. This is kind of not related, but we just wanted to show you that we take this very seriously and, and try to provide the best that we can, really.
2: Yes, sir. No comment more. Oh, no more comments. Tell us a
1: funny story. Alice, we want to know about Alice. People want to know about Alice. The likes
2: section tells me people want to know about Alice. Alice lives in a cave. And in this cave, there is a, a lot of yarn and a lot of fabric and a sewing machine and some knitting needles and crochet needles and books and books and tons of books and books. And all Alice does is... She's either working on a project or learning about a new project or in the middle of three projects. And sometimes she steps out of the cave and then there's like light shining in her face and she's like, oh no, I have to go and live the real life. And then she goes to the other cave where Kristaps lives and he's by the computer and he says, oh, it's so good that you're here. I just finished recording my episode. And, And then Alice sits down and edits the episode and then she... She gets up, she stretches, she yawns, and then she goes back to her yarn cave and yeah, rinse and repeat it's a great life <laughs>
1: we're living the dream uh, you know what, <laughs> we really really hope that you know we, we get married this August and that we will visit you too in the United States, or wherever you live because as far as, we've, as as far as we we know, a lot of listeners are from the United States, but you know what I have to say thanks to the to these, according to statistics, those those few people, those very few people in, in the the countries which uh, I, I I even I hadn't heard of, like we have listeners from Djibouti. A similar oh no, Djibouti. I know that country.
2: I, there was another one that I had. Uganda,
1: heard. Trinidad and Tobago, Uzbekistan. That's Uzbekistan, The, the
2: countries that are less known are the ones that are islands in, in Oceania and stuff.
1: Yeah, because we we don't keep in touch with them, and we have nine guys from Kenya. And that's amazing, because I, I don't know a lot about Kenya, but... Every time nice. we hear
2: that somebody's listening to us from Kenya, we think that it's the dude from Sense8 in yeah, his... Uh, we love
1: Sense8, shows show's great.
2: Yeah. Uh, can't wait for the new season. And yeah, we're just... Every time we think that it's the dude just sitting at us, at the wheel in his bus. Are this just one dumb this bus? Is one dumb bus, yeah. And
1: it's just instead of instead of watching those movies, it's just uh, listening to us. And I hope, I hope it actually happens. And yeah, write iTunes reviews, write stage reviews, tell your, all your friends about this. We will try to entertain you as much as we can. And you know what? Thanks. Just really. Thanks for being here, guys.
2: Yeah, guys. We Thank love you. Thank you a lot. We love you.
1: Honey, uh, this is the part where we would normally launch our end part, which you have recorded about Dark Myths, and the end intro. Can you do it on the fly? Do it.
2: And uh, I don't know if I know the text from, from heart. Um Wait, the Dark Myths one? Yeah, do the Dark Myths one first. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more podcasts like this one. The darkness awaits. See? <laughs> I didn't have the text in front of me.
1: <laughs> See, this, this is real. She really does that. Uh, it's great. And yeah, but the other, i part. Well, they, they have heard this. and, and you know.
2: Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. Yeah, no, I can't remember the rest.
1: <laughs> well, what can I say? Well, uh is Daniel and uh, for all you Fallout fans out there, because I'm one, oh boy, um, in, in my spare time, I, I, I don't sleep while working on this podcast, but then I take some time, time off to play video games. What I want to say to you is that, and I won't be explaining this, Ad <clears> victoriam, <throat> brothers and sisters, Brotherhood of Steel for Life! <laughs>
2: That was a shout out to all the Latvians listening to us.
1: И спасибо для всех, которые разговаривают по-русски. Мы вас тоже любим и спасибо за ваши ваши оценки и ответы и за все, что вы для нас сделали. Вы тоже прислали нам письма и это очень помогло нам. Спасибо большое. И до свидания.
2: Thank you for listening to the Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, the Eastern Border. Dot Lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer like this podcast subscribe to us on itunes stitcher or on our rss feed happiness is mandatory good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our hosts in the great motherland the eastern border salutes you